So today's the 19th. Uh, here's a proverb for today out of chapter 19. I chose verse 21. Many plans occupy the mind of a man, but the Lord's purposes will prevail. Amen. That is an amen. And so we've, uh, we've been in a verse-by-verse study through the book of Jonah. And uh, today we're wrapping it up. We're in the last part of that. And uh, I, this, this is really, a, this, the whole book of Jonah is this story of the largest, probably one of the largest spiritual awakening, awakenings in human history. Um, in, in Jonah chapter 1, God says to Jonah, um, you know, you, you need to go see these people. I'm paraphrasing. We'll get to the actual scriptures in a minute. But, but he did that because God said in, in chapter 1 that their wickedness has risen up to me. The, 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 the terrible things that these people are doing has gotten all the way up here into heaven. And why does the, why does the Bible point that out? You would have to wonder. Well, I think it's because the, these people that were needing this visit were legendary for their cruelty. They... Um, there are graphic historical, uh, historical accounts of the cruel t- treatment that they gave to their captives um, in, in Assyrian records. There's just a lot about it. They, they were known for being very, very savage. They would literally torture people. They would burn children alive. They would torture adults. They would skin them. They would build monuments out of skulls, and then they would put up inscriptions talking about the huge numbers of people that they had put under that kind of pain. It was pretty, pretty terrible. Nineveh was a very, very large city at the time, um, and some people put its, uh, its population around a million, just to help you um, capture that in your mind. Put Seattle and Spokane together, the two cities, you got about a million there. Um, or maybe another reference would be like San Francisco. I mean, a million people is a lot of people. And um, it was the capital, uh, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, which Assyria was like the superpower in the world of the day the superpower. And uh, people there lived large. They had the finest chariots, the fanciest um, foods. They had the most current entertainment, you know, the Hollywood of the day. I mean, it was, uh, they had, and they had an extensive business and commercial system that wasn't like any place else in the world. And they effectively ruled and dominated the world for a couple of hundred years. And uh, they were by far the strongest military power. They were just ruling everything. But things were just about to change for these people. And um, a more powerful force, the Babylonians, were about to come, out, come upon the scene and overtake Assyria. And they, they had that. So the days of Nineveh were numbered. Countdown going on. And um, know this, every nation has a number. Historically, you can see it. Um, every, every single nation that has ever risen to power in the world, they've had a number. And their number has kind of come and gone. And uh, they all have a time of birthing. They all have a time where their power, either they die or their influence diminishes. It's just true everywhere in the world. We like to think that's not true because we see the United States in a certain viewpoint, but it's true historically. Um, and so I, I think it's true also for the United States of America. And I think that not just personally, but there's scriptural reasons for that. When you take a good look at the, the Revelation, if you've studied the book, you know that there's a time when judgment is coming upon the earth. And it's going to come to the whole planet and when you read the scriptures and they talk about the events that are going on there, the United States of America is not listed in the scriptures among the power players in, that, in those days. We're just not there. Make of that of what, what you will, but clearly um, the United States will not be the superpower that we, that we are today. And um, you know, I think that's, that we struggle with that sometimes. We've got a mindset that says, hey, we're on the top of the world. We'll always be on the top of the world. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but it's just, I think it's just a matter of time. And 
if that's truly a matter of time, our prayers wouldn't stop that. We might delay it, but um, if that's the Lord's plan, you know, there is a point, though, where we could play. Lord, would you just send one more spiritual awakening, at least one more spiritual awakening to the United States of America? We could use one, right? Wouldn't you say? I mean, we could use one, and uh, at least one more, because if God can bring a revival like we're going to read about today, if he can do that in Nineveh with no better representative than Jonah, okay, and no better presentation of the gospel than the one he gives, when you see that, you're going to go, wait a minute, that did the job? Then he can certainly do the same in the good old U.S. of A. So it's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Jonah. Let me give you a real quick flyover of what's happened so far. The Lord says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, and he says, preach the message that I'll give you. Go there and give this specific message. Don't embellish. Don't subtract from it. Don't add to it. Don't think, well, the way to approach these people is a little softer or a little harder or with a little more chocolate or a little more strawberry. The message I give you, go do that. So he says that, and of course, what does Jonah do? He doesn't rush right over there and do it. He goes the opposite direction. He goes in that day to a place called Tarshish, which was about as far from um, Nineveh as you could go in the opposite direction. And uh, so the Lord says, oh, you think that's going to work? So he sends, the Lord tosses a little storm in their path. And it's a huge storm, actually. And um, the sailors who were seasoned sailors on the boat, on the ship, were going, this has not happened to us before. What's going on? And they're tossing stuff over. They're doing all the stuff sailors do. And it's not making any difference. And pretty soon, something in their soul says, hey, this isn't a physical problem here. There's something spiritually. What's the cause? And they figure it out. It's that guy that's asleep down in the hold. And they bring him up on the deck and they say, what's the deal? And he basically explains to them that he's the problem. Well, who are you? Well, I'm an Israelite. I serve the God of Israel, he tells them. Now, they knew who that was. They knew who the God of Israel was. Oh, that God, the miracle-working God. He's the one who makes food rain from heaven. He's the one who killed the entire Egyptian army one day to protect them. I mean, he, he does these, these you know, he, he, he's this God who's invested in their lives, supernatural things going on. That's the God you're running from? This miracle working God? And these sailors are thinking, you know, why would you try to run from someone who can't be run from? Why, why would you do that, run from a God like that? And, of course, we could broaden that question and say, you know, why would anybody run from God? Well, Jonah's running from the Lord, and he says to these guys, if you toss me in the sea, throw me overboard, the storm's going to end. They didn't listen to him. They rode for all their, they could. They said, well, we'll solve this problem ourselves, even though God has told us how to do it. We got our own thing. We're going to do our own thing. The rowing doesn't, this is rowing, by the way. <laughs> if you row like this, your boat's not going to get to the shore. Anyway, so I, I, I can't see what that looks like, but I think it's probably really dopey looking, isn't it? Anyway, so they're rowing. They're rowing for all it's worth. Oh, and they're not making it against that storm. And... Um, they give up, and they toss him in. And, of course, along comes this fish and uh, swallows Jonah. And that little last part is the focus for most people who read the book. They think, oh, this is what this book is about. It's three verses. It's really only one verse, but it's three verses that even mention this fish, and it's not what the book is, the major point of the book. So, so why does God have Jonah get swallowed by this great fish? Is this... 
is a lot of people read that and they go, oh, is this how the Lord deals with people who disobey with him? You know, is this the Lord getting even? I mean, all right, Jonah, you messed up. It's payback time. You, I gave you a chance. I gave you an assignment and, uh, you know, we do that. You know, I, I did this thing. I was involved in this thing and I did when I was younger and now God's getting even. It's payback time. We think that way. People think that way. But listen, God doesn't deal with people like that, especially not his children. That is not God's way. Because God loves us, he will discipline us and, um, when we walk astray. So God wasn't disciplining Jonah because he hated him. He was disciplining Jonah because he loves him, right? He loves him there. So God's chastening, his chastising is preparing us for some future task. It's, it's, it tells us that there's something more that God has for us in our tomorrows. And um, so actually it's pretty good news because if you're one of God's kids, he will discipline you. <laughs> he will do it. And, um, you know, if you, if you start to cross the line, you know, he'll step in and it, it might happen in all kinds of different forms. Sometimes he'll step in and he'll just signal your soul and you'll go, oh, yeah, 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 I hear you, Lord. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I don't know. Okay, okay, change my course. Sometimes it's, that's all it takes, the Lord signaling like that. Sometimes something will happen in your pathway that will make it a little harder for you or maybe even really difficult. God will be saying, okay, you have to make a real choice here and I'm not going to make this easy for you um, to commit that sin. And, or, or maybe sometimes you'll see the Lord and he'll, you know, you'll be found out in some way that you weren't expecting. And you think, what is the deal here? Why is it that I can't get away with anything and all these sinners around me get away with everything? <laughs> Tell me you haven't thought that, okay? Anyway, uh, just me, just me and, and mostly Eric, because Eric, you know, anyway. So um, the reason that you can't get away with it and when all the sinners around you can is because God loves you. Amen. That's the reason. You're his kid. You know, we discipline our children because we love them, because we know where that is going to take them, and we know the pain that that's coming for that. And as a parent of adult kids... Um, by the way, you don't stop being a parent when they go away. There's, you, you, you've seen, you've been through the pain that they're headed towards, and you'll do whatever you can, but they get to a point of determination, and some of those lessons they got to learn for themselves, just like I did and you did, right? And uh, so God's letting Jonah experience some things, and he's being disciplined right now. And it's a sign that God's not finished with him. And if you're being disciplined, it's a sign that God's not finished with you too. So here's Jonah, and he's being prepared by God for his greatest work, probably. He's, 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 he gets revived. He gets recommissioned by God, and, and we're going to come to revival in just a minute. But I want to just start out by mentioning this and plant this seed for where we're going to go, because revival starts with you. It starts with me, okay? And, and nothing can happen through me until it's happened in me and to me, okay? So those, just understand those concepts. So, so God has to first get Jonah right and, and, and get things sorted out with Jonah in Jonah's heart before he's able to uh, work through him to get other people right. So here we go. The, the whale opens up his mouth. He tosses Jonah on the beach like so many cookies. And the story picks up, and we're in Jonah 3, verse 4. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds. Remember, give the people the message I've given you. Here's the sermon. 
40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. <laughs> wow. Do you realize, Jonah, that's not politically correct? You know, do you realize? No. And, and what happens with that is amazing. The next, the next scripture blows my socks off. The people of Nineveh believed God's message. That had to be the Lord. And, you know, so here's, now consider their thinking. These evil people, the way they treat everyone else. Babylon's growing in power. God says, 40 days, tick-tock. And they're thinking, destroyed. We know what that word destroys mean, destroyed means when we do it to other people. The tables are turning. <laughs> And they believed, they heard the message and they believed it. And from the greatest to the least, they declared, every single person, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Verse seven, then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. By the way, if you're a citizen, and the king says to do something, you do it. <laughs> you do it. You obey. Okay, so out comes this decree. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must earnestly pray earnestly to God. Do you get the picture here? These people are seriously turning. Every animal, no food. Every person, no food. Every... People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning. Your cat? You got to put something black on the cat. Your dog? Your 47 sheep? Every animal has to be dressed for mourning. I don't have no idea what that means. But can you see this? Can you see these people, these farmers or whatever they're doing, going through the motions of not only putting a black armband on and a veil, they're doing stuff to their animals so that they're, they're, they're dressed for mourning. They're not taking a chance that a single person in the entire kingdom could somehow not demonstrate to God how seriously they were making a turn. Every animal, their parakeets, their... Picture this. I mean, this is an amazing picture. This isn't a handful of zealots. Every animal. It's crazy. What a picture. And God's watching this. Hey, these people have seriously changed their hearts. Wow. Everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. He's, they're naming their own sin there. Who can tell? Perhaps even God will yet change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Praise God. Let's pray for a minute. Lord, as we consider this great awakening that happened in Nineveh, it gives us hope for what can happen right here in our country, in our city, in our county, in our area. Help us, Lord, see whatever role you would call us to in that. Speak to us, Lord, from your scripture, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is this stunning spiritual awakening that's going on. This entire population of about a million people, they're turning to God. They, they turn from their sin of violence that they were known for, and so God spared them. He sends this nationwide revival, 
And <laughs> partly what amazes me is, you know, being the preacher boy, um, you know, they turn to God from a sermon like this, you know. <laughs> 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. When you and I hear the people doing that, you know, you've seen them, ever heard anybody? It's like we go, not case. But something must have been stirring supernaturally because hearts were available to the truth and they turned and they listened. And, and, and that, that very fact that they were told you got 40 days was actually pretty good news. It was pretty good news for them because God, it meant God was giving them a warning. It meant they had, and, and that's, you have a warning, that's hopeful. It's like, you know, here's why. If you take a look at what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah, there was no warning. Bang, it just came. It was just a point where God didn't send any more warnings, and uh, there's no Jonah in those streets walking around. Judgment just comes. But Nineveh is given a warning. They believe God's message. They turn to the Lord. And this reminds us, that, this just really reminds me that there is no one beyond the reach of God. No one. I mean, these people are really, really wicked. I don't know how to describe them. They're super wicked. They're overly wicked. They're wicked, wicked, wicked. They're wicked, wicked. Whatever that means. There's, they're, they're sinners with a capital S. They're, you just can't. Is there somebody in your life like that that you can't even conjure up in your mind a comic picture of that person carrying a Bible saying the phrase, praise God? Do you know somebody like that? I mean, you probably can think of somebody like that. I can think of people like that. I want to tell you that God can even save that person. <laughs> he, can, he can bring them to faith. I know what you're thinking. No, Terry, not this dude. Not this chickadee. You know, but listen, God saved Saul of Tarsus. You know who Saul of Tarsus? He became who we know as the Apostle Paul. His job before he got saved was to hunt down and kill Christians. God got a hold of Saul, and God got a hold of Nineveh, and he can get a hold of that person that you're thinking. And so, so here's, here's just a simple challenge. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but here's something about the person or persons you're thinking. I would suggest this. One, pray for that person by name for their salvation. Be consistent about it. Pray for them. Second suggestion, this one might not be so easy for you. Invite them to hang out with you and other Christians. Now, if that's completely a stupid idea from Pastor Terry, then you should disregard it. But if the Holy Spirit's doing anything with you, that's not my business anymore. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, I think we're reluctant to do that because we think that salvation is just not going to happen with that person. We, we just think that. We're, we have prepared our hearts for failure in advance, not for success. There's a story about a... Um, a young preacher that went to, to one of Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon's services. He was, Charles Spurgeon was this preacher in uh, New York, or excuse me, London, in the middle of the 1800s. And it was a huge church, probably six, 8,000 people, probably at the time the largest church in the world. And he was known for preaching the word of God with great power and authority. And people got saved at his services. They would come and their hearts would be turned and touched and they would be changed people and saved. And he, it, was, it was notable. And this, this young preacher goes to him, and, and this is a true story, and he said to him, you know what? I don't get it. I, I preach my heart out, and no one opens their heart to the Lord. And, and Spurgeon says to him, do you actually believe that, that God will save people every time you preach? The answer was, well, of course not. Spurgeon's answer was, well, that's the problem. You don't expect it. 
You're planning for failure. You're not thinking people are going to respond. His point is this. We need to attempt great things for God and then expect great things from God. God can spend another, send another spiritual awakening to America. I believe he can. I believe he could, and I'm praying that he will. And there have been um, several, uh, I don't know how to call them, revivals or great awakenings or spiritual moves by the Lord. There have been several in our nation's history, and if you decided to study them, you can. I did a little digging, and I came up with some. Um, let me just tell you about a couple of them. There was, there was one in the 17th, this is in the 1700s, before we became a nation, okay? So don't picture the United States of America like now with millions of people, 328 million, way, 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 way fewer people before the, um, before the Constitution and all that kind of stuff. So middle 1700s, there, was, um, there were these, um, um, as, as, as the country was forming, and, and there are names associated with, like, with this, like Jonathan Edwards. You probably don't care about people like that, so I won't go off there. But just in two years, from 1740 to 1742, about somewhere between 25 and 50,000 people were saved and added to the churches in New England, in the New England area. Now, that may not sound a lot to you, of 50,000 people, but the population of that whole part of the country at that time was only 300,000. 50,000 people, 25,000. Just this, this, it's just a huge, so that happened in the middle 1700s. Another one happened between 1790 and 1840, and you'd heard names, heard names like that, um, like Charles Finney associated with that. Now, this was the time of the Wild West, right? There wasn't a whole lot of respect for law in large parts of our country. Sexual sin was rampant. They would have these camp meetings. In a camp meeting, maybe they would set up a big tent or maybe they, whatever structure, or they would have it out in the open, and uh, they would have these deals. And groups of maybe ten to 15,000 would gather for these, ten, these meetings. And they might go for several days. And, um, um, and, 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 and this was now more in the middle part of the country, even smaller populations than on the East Coast, and thousands of people would come to faith. Um, in, in, in Kentucky alone, the state of Kentucky or in that area, between 1800 and 1803, over 10,000 people. And uh, tens of thousands of people across the front, frontier people would go to these meetings and they would just get saved and turned over, turn their hearts over to the Lord. One name you would recognize that that happened to in one of these camp meetings, a guy named Abe Lincoln got saved at a camp meeting. He went on to lead our, our country and and it's pretty respected today and, and had such a huge influence. Another big awakening was um, the, the middle part of um, um, the 1800s. And it, this one had a, a unique beginning. It's, you might have heard of this as the Fulton Street. You probably haven't heard of it. I'm such a nerd about this kind of stuff. I know you haven't heard of this probably. But Fulton Street in New York. So there's this guy uh, whose name was Jeremiah Lamphere. And, um, and, and he, there was a church in the... In, in, People were moving out of the central part of the city, and it was um, kind of getting more and more run down, and churches were getting emptied and so forth. And so uh, uh, these church leaders said, we got to do something here. So they just asked a guy to do some door-to-door knocking on doors in Jeremiah Lamphere, and he decided that what he wanted to do was, he'll do that and knock on doors and invite people, and he handed out leaflets. But what he really decided to do was to have a prayer time. So it was scheduled on a certain day, and... Uh, it was going to be there, and it'll be there from t- open from 12 until 1. He was attracting the businessmen, businessmen at the day. And if you have five minutes, come. If you have 10 minutes, if you can stay for a while, whatever, come. We'll pray. We'll pray for you, and you can pray, whatever. And uh, that first day, he didn't know who, people would, who would show up. And I think he had 12 people, maybe 15 people. But he thought, you know, we're going to keep doing this. And he kept doing this and kept doing this. And um, this Fulton Street 
they call it a revival. It, it began slowly, but it pretty soon it kind of exploded. And pretty soon, uh, this prayer meeting was going on, not just in this one location, but the theaters. Can, imagine Broadway. The theaters were filling up during the day for prayer times, filling them up. And uh, in, that, in that time, there's some calculations say that as many as 3% of the un- total population of the United States got saved as a result of what started there. We're talking like a million people. Um, I mean, I don't know, some, 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 some say a million people, but um, some of the counts say that over a period of six months, there were 10,000 people gathering daily in these prayer, these prayer settings in these, in these theaters, and uh, 50,000 people got saved in New York City alone. New York City. You wouldn't be able to tell that today, necessarily, that that kind of a move had happened and taken root there. But this countrywide thing was going on, and this huge, huge revival of, of the Spirit of the Lord was taking place. There have been other ones. I believe I've actually watched one. And um, I would just describe this one. This one started in the late 60s, early 70s, which uh, I came to the Lord in 1973. And... and um, um, and uh, at that time, just to give you, some of you go, yeah, I remember that. Some of you are going, well, that was history in history books. That was after I was, I was born after that. But basically, our country was in a huge amount of turmoil. And uh, um, we were doing stop, drop, and roll bomb drills in classrooms, okay? We could be bombed with nuclear bombs by the Russians at any minute. So the solution to that is get on the floor and cover your head. It's cute, you know? And um, I mean, I remember, I, you can go on now on YouTube and find black and white videos that were, they'd be showing. It's like, you know, I wouldn't show those to my children, but terrorize them. But that's what was in the schools, and um, things were going on. We had the Cuban Missile Crisis going on, and um, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And uh, right after that, his brother Bobby was assassinated and Martin Luther King. Our country was tearing itself apart. The Vietnam War was raging and it was controversial and people were coming. It was just, our, our country was turning itself inside out. And while that's going on, Watergate happens and maybe you will remember that or maybe you won't. Um, it was this terrible, terrible breaking of trust of the people by their government. People decided, I cannot trust government. And this was in the late 60s, early 70s, and there were protests and all kinds of things going on in our country. And the seeds of don't trust your covering, don't trust your authority, got planted deeply then, and that concept lives today. People that 30, 40 years ago were trustable people you could go to, you can't trust them anymore. That's the way culture says, what was good is now evil. Sounds like end day stuff if you read the Word of God. Anyway, so all the stuff's going on, and kids are rebelling. The, um, the concept of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, that's the kind of way, you know, it's a deal. John Lennon, famous Beatle, makes a comment, and it was way blown up, but he makes this comment that, you know, the Beatles are even more popular than Jesus Christ. And that offended a lot of people. It ought to offend a lot of people. And, um, and, but the thing is, in a lot of circles, is probably true. And then he writes this song, Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. And go on and on. I don't want, to, I don't want you to start singing that in your mind, because you will, right? And that song became the anthem of a culture that lives in the United States today. That is the center line 
of what culture, where culture wants to drive today. No, no religion. Let's all just get along. Let's not worry about anything that's factual or true or spiritually right. Let's just, you know, and this, 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 this is where this is going to, God watches this. And um, you get these hippies who are looking for something authentic and sincere and loving and true. And their hearts are open and they're pretty wild. And, um, and the Jesus movement kind of picks up and um, something supernatural starts to happen. And God begins to work in the hearts of these people. And it starts this Jesus movement in hundreds and thousands of people start pouring into churches seeking truth and seeking life. And um, all these crazy hippie kids showing up, and other people, they weren't all hippies. I was not a hippie. I was too young to be a hippie. I probably would have become a hippie. No, I don't know if I would have ever been a hippie. I had long hair to the middle of my back, but that doesn't make you a hippie, okay? Um, Anyway, so all that's going on, and um, um, churches that tended to welcome people who were honestly seeking God without respect to the way they looked or act. The Lord blessed those, and those churches grew. And the churches that went, go take a bath before you come here, take your hat off, and wear a tie, when they took that attitude, they didn't grow. They didn't grow. And um, I don't want to ascribe church growth to the mechanical formulas present in the church. I believe it's supernatural. But where the Lord decided to move was where people would let him move. And um, so that's going on. And here's the thing, that out of churches like that, that let the hippies in and people that were really willing to to, uh, um, just discover who God was, um, that's where contemporary Christian music came from. Prior to this, church worship was pretty much hymns and organ music. Okay, and what you and I experienced this morning—that is a product of that was birthed out of that time. I'm so glad. Nothing wrong with organs, and I love a good hymn, a good hymn. But maybe let's rock and roll. Let's go. (laughs) Anyway, so um, um, okay, that's personal preference. The point is that there are good things that have come out of this. And um, what happened was you have all all of these—you know—these people come coming to Christ who want to know more, and they're growing, and they're absorbent, and and they're growing, and then they want to share it, and they're planting churches, and they're doing things, and, um, and it started happening. And a lot of large churches, especially up and down the west coast of the United States, especially up and down the west coast, these large churches kind of grew and grew and grew, and they would spin off daughter churches. Crossroads Church started after this big revival hit, this big wave hit. We're a daughter church of that. We're a, this church is a daughter church of that whole thing happening. And um, that's where we came from. And when I, when I think about all that, I watched all this. So I got saved in 1973. I was in high school, okay? So some of the stuff I described happening in the 60s, I watched as I grew up and I didn't have this, uh, the same understanding that I do now. Um, but I look at all this and it's great. For the, I remember seeing that happen and experiencing it. But it was 50 years ago. <laughs> It's history. It's glorious history, but it's history. And we can't live in the past. We just can't. But we can learn from it. And um, here's what we need to do. We need to pray. We need to pray, God, do it again. You know, Lord, we need another one of these Jesus movements. We, we, we need another spiritual week. We need a revival in America. 
Psalm 85, verse 6, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Habakkuk 3, 2, I've heard all about you, Lord. I'm filled with awe by your amazing words. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in the years gone by. And in your anger, remember your mercy. People look at our culture and they go, God's got to be angry. Yeah, Lord, in your anger, remember your mercy. And uh, I, I think we have, I believe we have a whole generation that needs a revival of their own. They do. They need their own. And we should pray that the Lord would send another like that. So what's a revival? I mean, I think that's a word that gets tossed around a little bit sometimes. You'll drive down the street and you'll see a signboard in front of a church, you know. Revival, this week only. Starts at seven, ends at nine. Okay. (laughs) You might be having some terrific meetings. I don't know if that's a revival. Um, a revival is something that God does for us. It's not something we do for God. You, you cannot create a revival. You can't, you can't organize a revival, but you can ask for a revival. I, I think that, uh, here's, there's lots of ways of defining it. Here's a few that'll help us kind of hone, hone in on something. A revival is a supernatural invasion of God. That's one good, that's a good one. An extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. That's good too. I look at the world and I see a lot of non-believers and I think they don't need a revival. They need salvation. The church needs revival. You, I need revival. You need revival. <clears throat> revival is like when you get restored back to your original condition. It's like when you get put back the way the Lord wanted you to be like you were at the beginning. You know, and I mentioned before, I, I personally believe that most Americans have not actually heard an accurate biblical presentation of the gospel. I think our country is filled with almost Christians. You know, they know enough to get, them, get themselves in trouble. They know a little bit about it, but they don't really understand it fully, and they haven't really embraced it. Almost. Almost. Almost is a frustrating word, okay? Um, you know, it's like... <laughs> I, I might get in trouble for sharing this almost. Okay, so, um, you know, we're going to go somewhere... And I'll ask someone, or let's just take me out of this equation. Someone will ask their spouse, are you ready to go? And the answer is almost. (laughs) Almost actually means no, right? It could mean in three minutes, could mean in 15 minutes. Listen. (laughs) Okay. But okay, the truth is, if it was yes, it would, yes, here I come. It's almost means no, right? Okay. Okay. And <laughs> there are almost Christians. The problem with almost Christians is that they are tell themselves that they are Christians, but they're not ready to go. If you've ever been pregnant, I haven't been, <laughs> but you either are or you are not. There's no kind of pregnant. Almost Christians are not Christians. You know? I mean, here's a biblical example. Um, Herod Agrippa, gospel tells us that, you know, Paul's making this presentation to him. And basically, I'm going to paraphrase, he basically says, you know, hey, Paul, that's pretty good. You almost persuaded me. You know, America is filled, I think, with almost Christians. And just as the Lord told Jonah to go, I think we're supposed to go too. So Jonah goes... And this, this whole city has miraculously you know, changed lives and 
So how does Jonah react to this? <laughs> does he rejoice? Uh-uh. Okay, so he's hopping mad. So we learn a lot, I think, about ourselves as we find out what Jonah goes through. By the way, most people believe that Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. If I was Jonah, I would have left this part out. But, but there's something between him and God, and he's a prophet and so forth. Okay, so v- chapter 4, verse 1. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before, way back then, before I left home, and, uh, that you'd do this, God? I, I told you so, God. See, try that sometimes. The other. I told you this. This is why I went the other way. This is why I went to Tarshish. I knew you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He's mad at God for this. I knew this about you. I knew how easily you could cancel your plans for destroying these people. Just kill me now. He says that. Don't say that to God. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry with this? You know, this word angry here is, it literally means to glow. Okay? The word here literally means to grow warm. It's, it, it, it could be translated flare up. <laughs> Jonah is fuming. He's burning up with anger because God didn't wipe these people out. God says, hey, Jonah, what's your deal? You know, you liked it when I showed you mercy. Remember back in that belly, you were kind of like dead. You didn't deserve to come out of that fish. How is it that you're angry for showing to these people the same kind of mercy that they don't deserve, but you got it when you didn't deserve it? Did that make sense? God's saying, come on, do you? Okay, question for us. Do you ever get angry? When you see God, let evil people experience his mercy. Just kill me now, Lord. <laughs> I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. If what I predicted will not happen. He's saying there, God, I did exactly what you told me to do. Go to Nineveh and give the message that I give you. I did what you said. And you just threw me under the bus. You didn't back me up. Now my honor, my reputation, my validity as a prophet. You know, I'm a prophet, God. Did you know that? <laughs> Old Testament, the Old Testament uh, guidelines talked about prophets. Here's how you treated a prophet. If they said, God says, and it works out, then fine, they're a prophet. If they say, God says, and it doesn't work out, you kill them. He now qualifies for the you, you kill them part of this. God, you told me to say this. I did exactly what you said, and now you've made me into a liar in front of an entire population. He's ticked off. He's more focused on himself than the glory of salvation. He's, he's more concerned about his standing. You know, he went from the headline to the back page. I'm not quite sure what's going on here. He should have been rejoicing. And instead, he's mad. He's preoccupied with himself. You know, Jonah gets used by God to bring on probably one of the biggest revivals in human history. You'd think at this point, he's kind of like this super saint, walks a foot above the ground, and he's got this cape flapping, even when there's no wind. You know, he's just this magical thing, but, but he's, he's more concerned with himself here. And I think sometimes, I think sometimes, 
Christians can become concerned with new believers, that they're not changing fast enough, right? They don't seem, we don't see them changing fast enough. I'm more concerned with long-term believers not changing. They've stopped changing altogether. Here's what I explained by this. You know what I mean? Maybe you know some new believers and you've seen them make a commitment to the Christ and, and, and to Christ and um, maybe they're just not changing as quickly as you think they ought to. Maybe they continue to have the words coming out of their mouth that you'd rather they didn't and that you only do when you're plumbing. And um, um, you <laughs> I've stopped doing plumbing. It's better than sinning, okay? So um, <clears throat> it's terrible. So um, my kids literally would head out of the house if they saw me working and they would go outside <laughs> now you're getting even for the are you ready thing. Okay, so, um, I mean, it's true. I mean, they, they, or they, they would do some things that we'd say, come on, it's time to get past that, or they would continue with some habit that you've now mastered, and you're going, come on, master that like I did, and all these things, we, we, we can be that way, but my greater concern isn't that. I, I think, I think if, if, if you have a new believer and you see that going on, that's okay, right, keep praying for them. Keep encouraging them. Keep believing in them. Be patient with them. Do that kind of stuff. My greater concern is the believer who's known the Lord for years and years, and, and they've kind of stopped changing. You know, Maybe they've traded in the old sin and um, you know, the stuff they used to commit, the immorality and the drugs and the sex drugs and rock and roll. Rock and roll is okay. You know, anyway, anyway, they traded all that in and, and, and they got all new sins that replaced those. You know, the backbiting, the bitterness, the gossip, whatever. And here's Jonah. Jonah is this older believer. He ought to know better. And he's having him a big time relapse and he's angry with God. Now, by the way, being angry with God is not a sin. If it's authentic anger with God and disappointment with God, that's what God wants you to, to reflect to him. He wants you authentic with him. And he understands that we don't always see things he does. And, um, but are you angry with God? Maybe you feel somehow that he's let you down or that he didn't answer your prayers the way you wanted him to answer them or um, things didn't turn out in your life the way you hoped they would. Jonah's got to be watching this and wondering, why didn't God destroy these evil people? They deserve it. And sometimes we look on and we wonder why a good God would allow bad things. You know, why, 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 Jonah's got to be wondering, why would a good God allow good things to happen to bad people? He wants God to be bad instead of good. He wants God to be mean like he's mean <laughs> and wipe all these people out. And he's hoping to watch this final judgment. He pulls up a ringside seat, hoping it's going to happen. All this guy needed at this point was a Coke and a popcorn, but that's not going to happen. Verse 5, Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. He's got his easy up, his little ice chest with a six-pack of iced tea, I'm sure, some hot dogs and some potato chips. Okay, I'm ready for the show, God. Let her rip. <laughs> and the Lord thought, okay. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. <laughs> you know, this is how Jonah needed to be shaped. 
maybe you get a, maybe you get a plant and then a worm. I've had the Lord do that with me. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. King James, the King James translation calls this a gourd. It's basically, what I think it is actually, as I studied, it's like a palm tree. It's, it's, it's putting out a bunch of shade, whatever it is. And, and God gives him this beautiful tree and this shade to keep him comfortable. And then we can look down at Jonah and his stinky attitude here. Um, and maybe this passage is a warning for us because Jonah is this man who's now become more concerned with his own comfort than the souls of all these people. I'm wrapping up here. So let me ask you a question. Has this happened to you? I mean, because this can happen more easily than we think. As you look back at your own life, has the Bible become less meaningful to you, no longer alive to you than it was? Is, is prayer no longer a regular part of your life? Or maybe you've got to the point where you can't remember when the last time was that you actually shared about Christ with someone. Has church attendance become more erratic? Sometimes, I mean, we become more concerned with our own comfort than, than we want to be available. And then we become like the older brother in the prodigal son story, you know? The prodigal, you know the prodigal son story. We, we, you know the first part. The boy comes to his dad. Dad, I want my part of the inheritance and I'd like it today. I don't want you to, you're not dying quick enough. Give me my money. Basically, the father says, okay. Hands it over to him. The boy takes off and he goes to a foreign country and, and he blows through all that money and prostitutes and partying and, and lives however he wants to and he loses all of his money. He loses his reputation, his hope and um, then he comes to his senses, decides to go home dad's waiting for him. He's longing for him. There's a big old sloppy reunion. (laughs) His dad's really ecstatic with joy, but not the older brother. Older brother is angry, just like Jonah's angry. Here's how the story ends. This is Jesus sharing the story. Um, Luke 15, verse 28. The older brothers walked, stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief, but have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours who has thrown away your money on whores shows up and you go all out with a feast? His father said, son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time and everything that's mine is yours, but this is a wonderful time and we had to celebrate. We just had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. What's the story about? Jesus was actually getting criticized by the Pharisees for hanging out with sinners. You know, they're angry. The Pharisees are angry because he would sit down and eat with them. He'd spend time with them. And the, the Pharisees are angry. So Jesus tells this story. Guess who's who in the story? The prodigal son represents sinners, right? And the older brother represents the Pharisees. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you know, you guys are more concerned with your own comfort than, than the transformation of other people, salvation of people. And that's Jonah's question. And that's a very challenging question for us today, too. We wrap that up. It is, because Luke 15, here's the attitude of heaven about this. Just before this story, here's what Jesus said. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. That's up in heaven. Over one sinner who repents. Every time a person believes in Christ, there is a party literally happening in heaven. And we all have as I wrap this whole series up and we go to prayer, like in 30 seconds, we all have a Nineveh we are called to. 
There's some place you're called to go. There's something you're called to do. Your Nineveh is a place that the Lord has called you to. And it's a place where popularity doesn't matter. It's a place where faithfulness to the will of God is everything. And it's a place that leads to great blessing. Let's pray. God, um, (laughs) going through this, my heart is so mixed because I'm watching up close and personal in the lives of people that I am closely associated with and who I love deeply. I'm watching them walk through things just like this where bad things are happening to good people and good things are happening to evil people and it's so hard to understand. Yet, God, your mercy, when it poured poured out upon me, was undescribably wonderful. It is still today. And so, Lord, I pray for mercy. I pray for mercy for the people in my mind who don't deserve it. I pray for mercy in my life. Lord, we pray for a prayer, just this, at the most beginning level, Lord, a prayer of repentance where our, when, when those, we've come to those moments where our own comfort has been more important to us than somehow to be available to what your spirit might have been signaling. It's not always signaling go off to some foreign land as a missionary. Sometimes it's something as simple as pulling over and helping someone on the roadside because you said, that person needs your help or a friend or an enemy who needs our help. Lord, help us to walk with just a little more faith today than we did yesterday. And Lord, where possible, a whole bunch more faith. I would like to ask Christians, keep your eyes closed. There, there's a possibility that there are people here who don't know Christ as Savior. Scripture says that all who call on Christ will be saved. Scripture tells us that every person falls short of God's glory. There is no way to heaven except through Jesus, the Word, the word of God says. If you've never opened your heart to the Lord, you can do that. It's just a decision you make to receive the gift of salvation and your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You'll spend eternity in heaven instead of hell. It's a big decision that you can't make after you die. No one knows their hour or their day. I just want to give opportunity if there's any person here who would say, I I need to get right with God and I'd like to do it. I'm not asking you to join the church, just asking you to open your heart. Anyone here, let me pray with you. Just look up at me or give me a little hand wave and that's all. I'll know how I'm praying with you. Lord, thank you for your tender, loving ways. Thank you, God, for mercy and for your plans for us, which are not about our destruction, but about our future and our home. Thank you for that, Lord, because you love us so desperately. And if you can agree with that, would you say amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, well, so normally, when we end a service, we would close with a song.